you, you can't assume that every PhD student that's going to come into your lab is going to be exactly the same and want to be a little mini you because they don't usually. Um, most of them have their own agenda and they have their own needs. They have their own vision of what their future is. And once you figure out what that is and what they're good at and what really motivates them, then you play to their strengths. Welcome to Helium Podcast. I'm Christine Ogilvie-Hendren here with Matt Hotze. On today's episode, we chat with Professor Greg Lowry. Greg is the Walter J. Blanco Senior Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. And he also serves, among other roles, as the Deputy Director of the Center for the Environmental Implications of Nanotechnology, or SAIN, where I've been fortunate enough to work with him over the past six years. He is obviously great at the science part, and he's one of those people who always delivers One of the reasons we especially wanted to talk with him here today is that he's frankly just hilarious and he keeps it real and he is very intentional about how he approaches being a mentor, a colleague and a researcher. So we thought people would really enjoy hearing from him. We've both worked with him. I mean, you you currently work with him and I was a postdoc with Greg in the past. We thought he would be a great guest for two big issues surrounding early career researcher struggles. One is recruiting students, which he says is the toughest part of the job. And the second part is understanding what makes those who have achieved success, like Greg, successful. So we divided our interview into two parts based on these needs. And so in episode 15, which you'll hear on this recording, you'll hear about how to build a research group through careful recruiting listening to students and letting go of what is out of your control. And so this last part is key because this doesn't get discussed till the end of the episode, but Greg does a great job of really summarizing the things that he's learned to let go of because you don't have complete control. You are a professor, you do have your own research group, but you have to learn to let go of certain things. That is an important part of this episode. Yeah, I agree. That part is so counterintuitive when you're handed the responsibility for an entire group. How is it that there are parts of it that you set in motion and don't handle yourself? But Greg really talks about some practical advice for doing that. Uh, Another unifying theme throughout our conversations with Greg was how important it is to just develop a constant questioning as a habit of mind and how interconnected our success and really the success of our research overall is to asking questions about people all around us about what they need. So you really get the sense from this conversation about how always asking what others are working on, what do they need, what is the fundamental question they're interested in solving is really the bedrock for identifying and capitalizing on opportunities. Right before we started recording, so we we always talk to our guests before we start recording our episodes, Greg was asking us these very same questions about the podcast. So he's really living it out in every single corner of his life. The episode will be especially useful for those early career researchers just starting to build and recruit for their research group. So if you're in that position, listen up. So let's get to our episode with Greg Lowry. Hey, Greg. Hi. I think this is the first conversation we've ever had that didn't start with you saying, what's happening? <laughs> well, uh, since we're recording, I figured I shouldn't go, what's happening? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we're all about to find out what's happening. We were joking before we started recording that we have had so many normal conversations. It's, it's going to be hard to keep it on track. It's always just very fun. So um, hopefully it sounds to our listeners like they're hanging out 
at a happy hour with us. But we did do a little bit of thinking about what we wanted to talk to you about. And so maybe I'll just kind of dive in. Does that work? Yep. Sounds good. You know, we've had the chance to work together for many years. And over those years, I have really taken note about the way that you look at the leadership aspect of your role as a professor. And one thing we wanted to just kind of unpack from you is just how you view your role in mentoring students and postdocs. So both kind of philosophically, how you feel responsible for their development professionally, and then also just systematically, how do you put this into practice? Well, yeah, no, happy to. So, you know, I've had a good number of, of PhD students, um, probably in, in the thirties right now, I've got eight, right. Eight currently eight PhD students and, and a postdoc. If you think about what we do in our profession, we write papers, we get grants, we do all those kinds of things. Right. But the real output from, from our research programs are the people that we produce. The people go off and have an impact on the world. Um, you know, a publication has a certain lifetime. It might have an impact in, in, in some X number of years, and maybe you'll get lucky and have a publication or two that has a long-lasting impact. Um, but the thing that will have an impact are the, are the people that you produce. So my personal approach to, to, the, to the job of being a professor is to produce the best people I can and prepare them to do what they want to do. You know, so that's that's how I start, I guess. I, I try to figure out as quickly as I can what is in the best interest of the student. What is the path that they would like to pursue moving forward? And, you know, not all of them know what that is the first day they arrive. But I try to get there as quickly as I can because it's going to it's gonna make a big difference in a lot of ways. Um, you know, if a student wants to go off and be a professor, then you're going to push them to be very academic and produce highly academic papers, you know, be thorough, be modeling, et cetera. If the person would like to go off to a government lab and work or would like to go into industry, maybe you do things that are slightly more applied to prepare them to, to work in that environment. So if you figure that out, the earlier you figure that out, the better. And then it also allows you to play to the strengths of the student, right? So you can't assume that every PhD student that's going to come into your lab is going to be exactly the same and want to be a little mini you because they don't usually. Um, most of them have their own agenda and they have their own needs. They have their own vision of what their future is. And once you figure out what that is and what they're good at and what really motivates them, then you play to their strengths. Right? You, you, you talk about certain projects, you talk about elements of projects and you kind of look at, figure out when their eyes light up and you can see from the way they react to things that that excites them and, you know, play to that strength, go down that path with the project, make it as attractive as possible for them. And, and you'll find that if they're really engaged, then the productivity, it goes up. Um, and it also benefits them in the future. So I, I try to talk to people, talk to the students as soon as I can about their future. It'll, it sort of gives you the maximum amount of time in a career because PhD career is short Four, what is it? Four years long, maybe five. Okay. If you're in Wisner's lab, maybe 10, but, <laughs> but, but most of us are like four to five year kind of, kind of time frame. Um, so you can't wait until you're three and a half or 3.75 to say, oh, I would like to go work at a teaching university somewhere and then say, oh, man, maybe we should have had you teach a class for yourself to, to get your resume in order. So the sooner you can 
the student and you can sort of figure out what's the right fit for them. That gives you the most amount of time to, to prepare them. In practice, I'm constantly looking uh, for opportunities for students. You know, I've got a, I've got a few that are going to be graduating soon. I, I get funding from various places, including companies. And, um, you know, if the students are looking for corporate jobs, I'm always kind of wondering, uh, talking to the corporate people and saying, Hey, you know, I've got this student coming out. If a student I know wants to be an academic and there's postdoc opportunities, like I had a student just, just, uh, last week, well, four of them actually went to the synchrotron and, and one of them is going to graduate soon. Um, so connected her with some of the synchrotron scientists about maybe postdocs there at Stanford and at the SSRL or in one of the departments there. I know a lot of people in the field, right? And most professors are fairly well connected because it's a small community. And you know who's looking for students. You know who's looking for postdocs. You know what skills people might need. And as long as you're asking your colleagues, what their needs are, you can always find homes for, for students, especially ones looking for postdocs. Philosophically, my job is to get the student where they need to be in the long run. And if you keep that mindset, everything should work out okay. I kind of wanted to follow up on, on one thing that you said about developing the relationships with these companies, because I think that's probably the more difficult jump, right? So, is there a, an approach that you take to working with the companies, developing those relationships so that you do have those avenues open for the students that are interested in those uh, careers? Yeah, there's a few ways you can do that. So, you know, if you're getting funding from from a company, then you obviously have some connections there and, and you just listen to them and they'll tell you what their needs are. Um, but there's other ways too, right? We, we have a lot of master's students that go through our program. And as they get, uh, as they get hired into some of these consulting positions, you can stay in touch with them and reach out to them and say, Hey, I, you know, I've got a student graduating, uh, you, you know, PhD student who's graduating. They're looking for a role in your organization or a consulting type role. Um, what opportunities might exist? So, so I guess the simple way of saying that is you, we have connections through both masters and PhD students that we use to, to place future students. But then we go to meetings, right? If we're at conferences and various meetings, we know people from, from Geosyntech and Arcadis and, and from various um, consulting firms. You know, keep those connections open uh, with the intent of, of placing your students in the future. At least that, that's how I've done it. I've tried to cast as broad of a net and create a network, uh, as broad of a network as I can uh, to create opportunities. You know what? I really like the theme across everything that you're saying comes down to just asking questions and asking people what they want and need, whether it's the students, the colleagues, the company reps. And I really like that kind of approach just applied broadly. Just keep your ears open, ask people what they want and need. Yeah. Yeah. So far it's worked pretty well. You know, uh, the students, the students that I've had and, and postdocs have, have all landed well. So actually speaking of that, that's, uh, there's a step before that, right? Is actually bringing the postdocs and, and graduate students on board. So related to this is the recruitment aspect, right? So what are the tricks of the trade that you have in terms of figuring out how to attract and select people for your group that fit 
kind of, you know, you're, you're looking to serve them, but also there's obviously a, a symbiotic relationship. So you're, you're trying to figure out what's going to work for your group and your research. That is the hardest part of this job. And and it's true of almost any industry, right? If you, if you have a, a business or you have um, a, a company hiring the right people makes the job easier. It makes the company better. It makes the whole process better. A research group is no different. Right. And it doesn't matter if your group has two people in it or, or 22 people in it. The people that are there make or break uh, what's going on. You know, a, a professor is actually no better than than the students that that they're advising. And, and that's because, you know, the students are on the ground. The students are innovating. The students are pushing the path forward. Um, so the better students you, you choose, the, the better your research will go. <clears throat> a lot of the things that I've done and gotten into has, has not been because it's not been top down. It's not been because I said, go do this. It's been because the student has been working on something and said, Hey, you know, I ran across this. This looks like an interesting approach. Maybe we should try looking at that. And then there's some discussions about the path forward and whether it makes sense. Uh, but the students drive a lot of this. So, but your question was, how do we get students in the door? I think it varies by Institute. So Carnegie Mellon's a, a, a pretty well-known place, and we actually get lots of, of great applicants. We get more applicants than, than we can bring in. Um, I know other universities struggle with getting applications in the door, but they're like, like with finding positions for students, you got to cast a broad net. You want to, to be out there. You want to ask your colleagues, do you have anybody graduating? Do you have any undergrads or master's students that are good and are looking for positions? And Anytime I go to a conference or a meeting or give a seminar at a university, I ask, who do you, who do you got that's coming up? Who do you got that's going to be, going to be applying? Who do you want to apply? So, so here's a great example. I was just at a meeting last week in Washington, DC, and I was, I was judging posters for the poster competition because I, you know, I like to see what the students can do. And this one student was very, um, energetic. Uh, and she was actually one of the, one of the best ones that I was talking with. And then it turns out after, you know, I just assumed she was a PhD student. And then she tells me, oh, well, I'm just an undergrad. I'm just an undergrad, uh, and uh, at the university of Buffalo actually. And, um, and I, and right away I was like, Hey, are you thinking about grad school? Are you thinking about a master's or a PhD? You know, Buffalo is not too far from Pittsburgh. Uh, maybe we can recruit you. So I gave her my card and I said, call me uh, if you're looking for grad schools. Um, so that's, that's again, cast a wide net, ask people, figure out what they're looking for. Um, talk to your colleagues about who the best people coming through are uh, and just always be on the hunt for people. Don't, you can't just wait to see what applications roll in the door. You have to go after them and recruit. Yeah. Like it's not a passive process. It's, it's very much an active process. And a good thing with her, it sounds like uh, she's in a colder place than Pittsburgh. So if she does end up coming, <laughs> it's, it's probably a little bit colder, but it's definitely snowier. So we can, we can maybe recruit her here. That would be great. Um, okay. Then as far as like grad students at, at the end of the day, you've got, you have all these applicants, some that you've recruited in through meetings or through other, uh, you know, asking people, some that have just applied to your program. And then the question is, how do you select from them? How do you figure out if someone's going to be a good fit? So, so I look for a couple of things. 
I think first and foremost for me is intellectual curiosity. I'm, I'm looking for students that want to know the answers to things. You know, not the one that says, oh, I need a PhD so I can check that box so that I can go on and do this job. It's, I'm really looking for the one that says, I just want to know how this works. I just want to understand this process better. And, and in my experience, the ones that have that intellectual, that really deep intellectual curiosity um, have, have excelled. And, and it's very much aligned with, with what we do at university level. So I think that's a good thing. But that's not to say that every student, there's a continuum of intellectual curiosities, but, but the more intellectually curious they are, the better. Then, of course, the other thing I'm looking for is smart people. I want really smart, smart people. I, I can teach. Uh, I was just talking to someone about this not too long ago. I'm trying to remember who that was. But I, I can teach people skills. I can teach people environmental chemistry. I can teach people how to do, you know, LCMS. I can teach x-ray spectroscopy, but I can't teach intelligence. You know, it's either there or it's not there. So, so you're always kind of looking for someone who is, is a really smart, sharp person. Um, they're the best ones to have in the lab for sure. Now, you know, someone who's someone who is like a super hard worker can can probably uh, make up for, for someone who's maybe less intelligent than the, the, the absolute top of the list. But the more intelligent, um, the better, because it's hard to teach intelligence. And then I think the, I think the last thing is alignment. You know, you, you don't, you, you want a diverse group uh, in, in terms of, of where they're from, in terms of gender, et cetera. But you want people in your group that are a little bit like-minded in the way they interact with one another. I think it makes things go more smoothly. You know, in my ideal world, my group are like all my kids and all my kids get along and don't fight. That would be the best way to <laughs> about your, your research. Right? Now, of course I have two kids and they fight all the time. So, so, and my, and my, my research family fights sometimes too, usually about who gets, who gets the pipetters and all that kind of stuff. But one thing that I found, which is kind of, you know, in, re in thinking about this discussion with you guys um, and reflecting a little bit, is that students often self-select. So, you know, I might have a person that, I, that I've talked to at a meeting, that I recruit here. They're smart. They're intellectually curious. They've got all those things about them. They show up. And they, they just realize that this is not the right environment for them. They are, they are not in alignment with the attitudes of the people that are in the group. And they don't come. And, and when I first got started as a faculty member, I was very upset when I couldn't recruit a student here, when they went and I lost them to Stanford or Berkeley or whatever. And, um, and then I realized, you know, it's not, it's not only, um, it's not, it's not my decision, right? It's their decision. And they need to find and feel like they're a good fit. And if they don't come, they might not have worked out as, as perfectly as you would have envisioned it to be anyway, because they don't quite fit in with the group. My, my main point is that you don't control everything, right? You, you, offer, you offer an opportunity and you offer an environment to foster you know, their, their, their academic pursuits. And if that's not the right fit for them, so be it. And don't get upset about that. It's just, it's just the way it is. That's such good perspective. 
Yeah, and, and, and uh, it takes a while. It takes a while to get to that perspective because when you know when you're first getting up and running, you're like, ah, I need people. I need good people. I need to make them produce. Blah 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 blah. Um, in 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 hindsight, after a lot of years, after after that startup mode, when you're in the beginning of that S curve and things start to get a little more um, steady state, you can reflect on these kinds of things. But I wish I hadn't fretted so much over the recruitment part in the first phase. So so here's a great example. I was a student a long time ago. A student I really wanted here was great. Had an NSF fellowship. I thought was a perfect fit. Everything was good. And she thought she was a perfect fit too. Cause we talked and everything was really good. And at the end of the day, she goes, I, I'm not coming. I'm like, Oh man, why not go? Cause my boyfriend got accepted at this place. So we're going there together. Like, okay, totally out of my control where, where the boyfriend goes. Right. And has nothing to do with me. I can't get upset about that. It's, it's the choice of, of the student and a, a life choice more than just a career choice. So don't, don't sweat the stuff that's out of your control. That also makes me think of um, another angle of people who are at the beginning. And I, I know how hard sometimes it is to find this mix of skills that you're looking for. And, and maybe you haven't honed your gut instincts yet so much when you're choosing students. So I'm kind of wondering about um, digging a little bit into advice you might have when you've realized you have maybe uh, ended up with somebody that's not a great fit on their end or your end or both. And, um, you know, what are the different outcomes? Because I know that people spend some serious emotional energy and turmoil when there is an issue. And do you have some advice in the similar to the don't fret about losing somebody that wasn't a fit before they actually joined your group? Do you have advice for, man, I wish I would have realized that this is how you handle it when you end up in a situation where you don't have a good fit. You're asking if you have a student who's in your group, who's gotten started, but it turns out that maybe it's, it's not a great fit for, for either. Yeah. Like what do you, what do you, and, what do you do with a student that you've now recruited and have started on a PhD, but it doesn't look like it's going to be a good experience for, for either party? Yeah. And I guess maybe kind of on the way to deciding if that's the situation versus have you, do you just need to do the, the thing you talked about in answering earlier where you're, you've got to ask them what it is that makes them light up. So, so how do you probe that, figure out if there's something to make these red flags go away by better aligning them? And then if it does come to the point where you, you realize this isn't a good fit, do you have any kind of advice for people who are stuck in that spot? Yeah, that, that, that's always a hard situation when you, when you've got someone and they're a year or a year and a half in and, and you're thinking, geez, you know, if this person stays for another two and a half years, it's going to be like pulling teeth to, to get any productivity and to it, just because the person doesn't like what they're doing. It's, it's really hard. For, I mean, put yourself in the student shoes. If, if you're, it's hard to earn a PhD, right? It's a lot of work and you have to love it. You have to be dedicated to it. And if, if you can't get yourself motivated and dedicated and excited, actually, you know, performing everything that has to be done to get to the thesis and a defense would be almost impossible. I mean, it just would be miserable. If you ask, you've got to keep asking those questions. And if, you know, what I've done in the past is if I find someone who's miserable down one path, 
you know, who's like, you put them in the laboratory and, and you, and they just, after six months, they're like, I hate pipetting. I hate laboratory. I hate measuring stuff. I hate calibrating instruments. This is killing me. This is not going to work for me. Um, but maybe they're excited by modeling stuff and they're more of a a modeling type and they get like to get on their computer or they like to, to find information and consolidate information. You might be able to find a match that, a pro uh, that can serve your project because most of these projects are funded by somebody or, or an entity that has um, an end goal in mind and you can find a different path for them. But sometimes you just can't and, and it's not always bad. So I'll give you an, an anecdote from very early in my career, actually um, uh, probably only like my third year or something. I had a student uh, who already had a master's degree came in, I had them in the laboratory working. Um, we were doing kind of an interesting project on figuring out how to sense leaks from pipelines. If you imagine that, that's like far removed from what I do now, but that was something we were doing back then. And um, it just wasn't working. This this person just really hated the laboratory. And, and it, we talked and he kept saying, okay, I'll do it. And then wouldn't do it. And it was just, he just couldn't get motivated to get in the lab and do anything. And, and I eventually just said, after a year or so, I said, look, this is, this isn't working out. And he said, yeah, I, I think it's not working out. Um, but it turned out that there was another professor in the department, um, that had, a, was looking for someone and had a project and he was interested in that project. And, you know, of course I said, look, he's a smart guy. He's got all this stuff going for him, but he, he wasn't, he wasn't working out for me. He wasn't performing in the lab. Turns out this other professor, the, the project was modeling. There wasn't so much lab work and it had to do with data and some other things. And he very much excelled at that. He's a professor now. Um, so it worked out for him. So, so I guess the point of that long winded story was that if you know something isn't going to work out, you just got to be honest and just like cut that cord because it is in the benefit of both parties. And it will generally work out in the long run. And I mean, to give you, to give you another story in my career, I've actually only had to let go of three people ever after 18 years. So selecting wisely is a, is a good thing to do. So you don't have to go through this, but if you have to, it's a good idea. So I had a student once a different student now just struggled with the qualifying exam, really had a hard time with the qualifying exam said, okay, well, you can do it again second time still was struggling with the qualifying exam. And I sat down and finally just had to say, look, this isn't working. Um, we're, we're going to fail you on your exam. And, uh, you know, you, I'll keep you for as long as you need to, to move on. And, you know, well, not as long, but a, a semester or we'll finish out the year or whatever. I wasn't just going to kick him out the door that week, but the, the look on the student's face was one of just, utter relief. And then when the student started talking to me, it came very clear that this student really didn't want to do a PhD at all, was sort of being coerced a bit by, by family to, to do a PhD and was just happy that it was over. Um, so, so again, a case where it's a very hard decision to make, but in the end, it was absolutely the right decision. And, and so, so the moral of all these stories are, it's a, it can be a good decision and go with your gut. If your gut's telling me that this person isn't working out and, and you know, we're most of us are 
err on the side of caution and we're like optimistic. Oh, we can do this. We can make this work. But if you're, if, if you're given all that up and it's still not working, don't be afraid to cut that cord because it's probably beneficial in the long run for, for everybody. That's such important advice for people to hear, I think, especially early in their career. And, and also I like what it speaks to in terms of you kind of realizing the inherent power dynamics at play in academia and saying that you're taking it on yourself as the professor to set up that really open communication. Just, okay, this is, this is all of our real lives here. Let's not waste time. Let's not be dishonest and kind of disrupting that power dynamic silence that can happen is, is really useful for everybody. Yeah, for sure. The, the conversation should never start with, I have decided that you should not pursue a PhD. It shouldn't, it shouldn't go that way. It, it should, this is really tough. And let, you know, tell me, you know, ask them, tell me how, how do you think it went? How do you, how do you really feel about this? And you will find that, that maybe it's just, they, they know it's just not really what they want. You've been listening to episode 15 of Helium Podcasts. The show notes for this episode can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 15. Don't forget that we have a Fusion Friday newsletter. You can find that newsletter by going to teamhelium.co slash podcast and scrolling to the bottom of the page. On that newsletter, which we send out every week, we distill the best tools, books, and resources for early career researchers. So please check that out. The music for this episode is from Michael Blake. You can find him at mblakemusic.com. Helium Podcast is produced and edited by Christine Ogilvie-Hendren and me, Matt Hootsey. Join us in a couple weeks for episode 16, where we find out more from Greg about the reasons for his early career success. Until next time, may your impact be about more than your impact factor.